You are listening to a Music Secrets Exposed podcast documentary series in association with Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation. Episode 6. New original Paul Lloyd Warner piano recordings that made the next albums for sale. Hear the story about Paul's earlier four-year piano scholarship live concert in Hawaii with whales and dolphins, and acquiring his dream instrument, the Brusendorfer piano. Stay tuned. segment we completed the story of Paul's first concert where he began to enter the public domain in Hawaii and we completed the last segment speaking about the miracle of Dolphin's album and how that whole album was completed an amazing testimonial came along with that um, how a lady used the music as part of her healing process from very serious cancer she was almost dead and she came back from it and she utilized the miracle of dolphins album it's an amazing segment so if you haven't heard it go back and listen to it now my next question paul is what happens next well um i am now moved to the mainland i moved to, to the bay area and i move in with my family in uh, the san francisco in the city of san francisco uh, and i find uh someone a professional who can really help me get the LP, long playing album, and the cassette manufactured. We had already designed them uh, together. Uh, I had done the design, then he did the refinement for me. We finally got that the way we like it. And then we went to get them all printed out. I got a whole bunch of LPs and a whole bunch of cassettes. What albums were you focused on at this point? Was it the Miracle, Miracle of Dolph Dolphins? Miracle, Miracle Dolphins, that was it. Just that was the only album that you were working on at that oh, point. Yeah. Right, because I signed a contract for the other albums and I, I Oh, didn't, so you didn't have right. yeah, you didn't have power I, over I that. Just, so and what year was this? 1983. Oh, okay. Okay. In the spring of 83, I moved to the Bay Area and moved in with my family. All very nice. It was great to be with them. I had a good time. Uh, and uh, then I was so happy to be able to bring out the LP of Miracle of Dolphins, which I considered a beautiful, beautiful album. And the whole idea of taking, taking the music from the sound of dolphins and bringing that to reality, making real music from it. And I was happy with my performance on the piano. It was recorded in a very fine studio in Oahu, Hawaii. Uh, that's where Honolulu is, uh, and that now I had the money to come to the mainland and, and process, bring all those things into existence. So I first just went, oh, I I went around to a few flea markets and sold them there and made, you know, a few dollars for the week. And then I got an invitation uh, in the summertime 
invitation to come back to Hawaii and to play the Miracle of Dolphins at Sea Life Park in Oahu. Now, Sea Life Park is Sea Life Park is a dolphin area. Yeah, it sounds uh, beautiful. Just yeah, just I mean, thinking of playing that music in such an environment. Right, because dolphins yeah. were, you know, I didn't really believe in dolphins being caved in in a big cement tank where people can come pay a lot of money and enjoy yeah, I, I don't, I don't see eye tie with that either. I mean, they're animals. They're meant to be free in the ocean to do their thing. They're meant thing. to be free in the ocean. Mm. And at that time, uh, uh, but they wanted me to play for the dolphins. Uh, and they wanted me to play the music that I had uh, recorded for Miracle of Dolphins. I think I had sent them uh, an LP to listen to for some reason. Uh, and they invited me to come and give a concert there, have a full, one, right during when they had a full audience. And they had uh, big bleachers. It was a big, big thing, just like a sports uh, place. Uh, and just on one side, and there was a huge dolphin tank. Uh, and when I came there, they got me there earlier and they brought me down. I could see the dolphins from inside. And, Try to make friends with a few, and they come to the window, and I point to them, blow kisses and things. And they were really friendly dolphins, very nice Pacific bottlenose dolphins mostly. And then uh, came time, and we set up an electric piano, uh, which I felt was the best thing to do. There were no keyboards then at that time. This was eighty, was September of eighty-three. Okay. But I had my Miracle of Dolphins album, which I bought for sale. Uh, and they situated me just on the sides, uh, down by the tank. Uh, the, the ocean is on one side, the tank is on the other side, and the bleachers are over on the left side. So they can, these people can see me, they can hear me because it's all amplified there, but it's amplified into the tank as well. Dolphins can hear the music. Okay. Dolphins could hear the music too. Now remember, I play for the whales, so here I have an opportunity to play for not wild dolphins, but at least dolphins. Uh, and even though I did not approve uh, of having uh, dolphins literally prisoned in, I could play music to them, and that would be an opportunity that I wanted to do. Why not? So uh, time came that. What happens? So I started to play, and the and the dolphins are there, and people are there, and I'm playing the first piece, and then I go into the second piece, uh, and I could see dolphins coming up, bobbing up out of the water, down again. And people are all very seem to be very happy, uh, and then at one point, three dolphins jump up like that jump up out of the water. And the sea life photographer, the official photographer for that, she caught that moment of me playing and the dolphins coming up. She got that moment. That's, that's I've special. Got the picture that's of special. It. I've got the picture of it. And I, I didn't prepare to bring it today to you, but it's on my website. Okay, okay. You can find it there. Uh, and I can send you a picture if you like. And so this was uh, a great moment for me. I mean, it wasn't as great as playing for the whales at sea, but still I got to play for dolphins and a big group of people. Yeah, how many dolphins were there? There were three dolphins and in the distance there was a pilot whale. They all came up at one time. 
in synchronized together. They all just came up like that. He got the picture and oh my God, a few months later, I got that picture in the mail. Oh, that's that's and a special like moment. Perfect picture. Me playing with dolphins coming up. Yeah. It's a real picture. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It wasn't like anything fake. It was a real thing. The real deal. And so that was worth the whole experience just to get that picture. Yeah, yeah. That's... And I used that when I was uh, uh, selling Miracle of Dolphins and I started going to art shows. Now I'm starting to go to art shows. That's where I found my audience. I was in the Bay Area. Bay Area is a very wealthy area. You know, you've got Stanford University. You have all the development of Microsoft and yeah, Silicon Valley Apple, and all, all, all of that. Yeah, there. the movie industry, needless to say. The whole thing. Yeah. And so you've got great intelligence there. The PhDs, all kinds of people. But there were art shows right in the areas, those areas. Yeah, but I'd imagine that there'd be very creative minds there that would be so open to difference. So you're coming along with a very different sound and a very unique kind of picture on music, if you will. And then these creative people say, oh, that's interesting. You know, we're in a more inland area, particularly that mightn't have that affluence, mightn't respond in the same way. Well, we started going to some of the inland areas. Okay. And we found that people liked it too. Yeah, okay. Because at that time in the, the early 80s, mid 80s, uh, it was a, a very good time for the economy in this country. Yeah. And probably in other, other places in the world. And I would say that money was flowing very well in those days. It wasn't hard to sell it. When people heard the music, they bought it. Yeah. So I was going to uh, art shows and uh, selling the music directly to people. I found the market for the music uh, and the music was directly with the people. And what uh, kind the, of footfall would you have had like at a typical art show? What kind of numbers would you be looking at in terms of people and The biggest art shows had tens of thousands of people come through on a Saturday and Sunday. And what times, of, what times of the year would you have been at art shows? Throughout the year, except in the deep winter. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was too cold, they didn't have art shows mm -hmm. in California then, but from spring to Christmas time. That was a good span. Years, spring. Yeah. 
That was that was a good business. Oh yes, and uh, during that time, I've been making money for the first time in my life selling my music. And then I said, wait, I only have one album that I'm selling still very well, um, and I in fact can afford to buy used print material to open up my little print shop for my poetry and and and, and actually uh, typeset my poetry right from lead type. And, and do all that. So I should say here that Paul is also a poet. He isn't only a musician, but he's a major poet. So when you hear Paul talking about poetry, um, it's part of his life, a big part of his life. But please continue. Thank you. So uh, I, I was really making money. I hired an assistant, a secretary that helped me book shows. Uh, and to uh, keep all the everything in order and to help me get my, all my bills paid and you know just take care of all the situations that had to be done. She was a wonderful woman. Her name was Kim, and she was very special. She worked with me for many years and was so dedicated. Uh, and so then I figured out, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of shows going on in the Bay Area at one time. Kim and I used to figure out, show should we do? Let's go to the best of all of them. And then I was missing other shows. So I hired somebody and trained them. I took them with me for a few weeks to show how I sell the music, how to set up a table. And then uh, I let them go do a show. And they came back with not as much money as I made, but it was money I didn't have. So I liked it, and then I hired a third person. It was like a new life. Like it was like, you know, from Hawaii and all those experiences there, and now life. you're moving into this. It's a new life. It's a different life. Okay, going back, so I'm going around, I'm going to the big shows. I have hired people to, to do the smaller shows. And uh, now I can hire a small staff to help me. I want to take care of uh, all the uh, CDs, tapes, LPs. Uh, no, I didn't have CDs, and just uh, LPs and cassettes. Uh, keep that all accurate. I had to have hire someone to keep all the money accurate all that sort of thing so all our expenses were clear our taxes were well done all those things i had to take care of and i was not a born businessman but i learned business by knowing exactly what to do you just do it by by practice i'm making money what do you do with that money how is that money legally handled and i wanted to make sure that i didn't clean and 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 be above board with anything that nothing i I would keep no money secretly. It would all be done right. So I would have a clean conscience of what I did. So I hired the right people to help me do that. And just the shows were growing and growing. I had more influence. Uh, the following year, I'd come back and people would say, oh my God, your music is so great. What new do you have? What things do? I was 84 and I didn't have, have anything new. I had only Miracle Adopt. So in 1983, your focus was selling the Miracle of Dolphins, and now 1984, people are asking for new music. Yes, which I didn't yet have. I figured, well, I can't really 
sell the music on my own music that I've already signed the special contracts for. So I need to have music that is not done on those albums, but that still was my music. I own the copyrights to the music. So I figured, okay, I can't record those pieces again and sell them, but I can give a concert and play the music and make it live in concert album. Of course I can do that. It's, I'm free. This is my work. I own the copyrights. So therefore, uh, what I did is I organized in 1985, I organized a concert in Santa Cruz. I was living in Santa Cruz. Now Santa Cruz is on the north end of the Monterey. You the south end, you have the big cities of Carmel, Monterey, yeah. and then further down you have Big Sur. People, that's where they usually go when they go to the Monterey Bay. Monterey Bay is 50 miles, very wide, long, beautiful beaches. And the very north end is Santa Cruz. And Santa Cruz is like such a great small city. It's the best small city in the U.S., in my opinion. Why is because that? Because there's so much culture there. Culture. So when you say... Because it has more movie theaters than, than big cities. More movie city, more movie theaters than big cities. Incredible. And it has as much live theater as, as San Francisco has live theater for a small city. And is it for is it city. is it due to the location or is it just the attractive nature of it, where it's located? That's, and great people have moved into it. Just very creative world, people, yeah. Country. Very extremely creative. Still, even today, a creative source of power. In fact, it's the most creative part of the entire Monterey Bay. Santa Cruz, even though you've got now the aquarium down in, Mon in Monterey, which anyone who goes to Monterey, California, you have to go to that aquarium. At the time it was built, it was the greatest aquarium on earth. Now I think in Dubai, you know, maybe I've done it, but it doesn't matter. It's a phenomenal aquarium I could talk about, but I don't want to waste our time on that when we're talking about the progression of the music here. Okay, so. Um, I settle in Santa Cruz, beautiful city, just beautiful. Uh, and it's, it's a city of maybe 125,000 people at the time I was there. 85, 84, I moved there. Yeah. Uh, and in 85, I'm looking for a piano, a good piano. Uh, I don't have a piano yet. I'm looking for a piano okay. that I can record on and have an audience. And I learned that there's a church there called the First Congregational Church in Santa Cruz. And they have a Busendorfer piano there. Oh, nice piano. Well, the Busendorfer is the, is the queen of pianos. It's the considered... That's the piano, the, the chosen piano for film sets and everything, isn't it? The Busendorfer. It, it was, yeah. yes, in the early days of sound because it's so clear. Um, and... Um, now but they have a beautiful seven foot four on this side. so just a bit of history about the Busendorf piano because it's it's an uh, an interesting piano to just know a bit of history about it's it was a piano manufactured in vienna and it was all yeah. handmade and the, yes. the reason why it was chosen for film sets was just simply the clarity of sound Right, because in the early days of film, microphones were not developed to the level we now know. Okay. Very basic microphones. So they have to pick up a sharp, beautiful 
sound of the piano, nothing tinny, nothing that is too sharp or loud. So if, can... if you go back to the days, now I'm going back a long way now, back to, we'll say, old film sets like Laurel and Hardy and others, is, is that the piano you're looking at in those film clips that you can find on YouTube and so Most on? Most of the time, yes. I mean, I, I can't say for sure I know the entire history, but I know that it was used, I think, in mostly romantic movies, you know, where you're going to have, you know, piano playing. And all of that, yeah. Okay. I don't know all of them, but I know that it was the chosen uh, piano for early film, where there's early sound. Okay. That would be the 1930s and probably through the 40s. But now, of course, they're developing technology in the 50s, you've got stereo, you've got, you know, in the Europe, they're developing great microphones, in Austria, in Germany, especially those two countries. And I just have another question. When we look back to the previous segments, you mentioned about your home recording studio and, and all of that. What happened to all that equipment now that you're in um, Santa Cruz? Was that still back in Hawaii? stored away no all that all that equipment got sold okay uh before i uh before i created miracle of dolphins it all got sold because uh, the man who gave it to me got ill uh, and his brother called me and said uh, you know his brother's very ill and is requesting that I sell the piano and the equipment. And that was the grocery and piano? Yes. Okay. That must have been difficult that. to see that go. There was so much, you know, experience and so many things happened around that situation. Of course it was. Yeah, it must have been. Of course it was. But at the same time, I thought of the man who gave of it to course, me yeah. and his wife. And if that would help him, then I was glad to do it. I was very glad. And I was living, I was out, out here on the mainland in Santa Cruz when I got that call. And so I called up my tuner, Yoshi Nishimura. The, the great tuner was tuned by, uh, trained by Yamaha in Japan. He's now lived in Hawaii and he had his own, uh, uh, his own piano store. Oh, very good, on Hawaii, so in, Hon I in Honolulu. Him in Honolulu. Yeah. So I called him up and said, uh, I need to sell that piano, or would you be able to help me? So he, he brokered that piano. He found someone, uh, kept a little for himself, and then uh, the money was then taken and sent directly to my friend. Oh, it was a pity Stan, Stan was, got I sick. I was happy to do it. I know. I mean, I had to, but, but uh, it was a loss for me, but I had, I'm now in a free new world. I'm making money for the Yeah, but time. you know, you, when you think back to the man Stan, who originally set up your home recording studio and had such a heart to give you the piano where, when you so needed it. And there was so many experiences created from that. It was so sad to see him end in that way, you know, with ill health and because he had such a good heart. That was a real painful loss, real painful loss. Uh, it, it, I, I cry when I think about it, so I'd rather not. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yes, he was a great man and he, served me so well and he helped bring out my music to the world and that's why i could speak of him here in these podcasts to honor him because of what he did for me yeah. just like what hanaviri did for me in spiritual growth yes uh, this man did for me in my personal growth and, and professional uh work so you know uh, i i'm sorry to see him go yeah but such is life
such is life now so we're back just to uh re you know rejoin the story where you're at so you're, you're in santa cruz now and you're in the process now of looking for a piano so what happens no not yet not, not yet. yet not yet okay no 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 the years are going by and so now it's 1985 okay and i'm about to record a live album for an audience in 1985 yes okay and i'm going to call it live in concert therefore i could play the music i composed in hawaii that was um on the contract in the contract i signed but it wouldn't be those albums it would be music i play in concert i can play my music for other people all i can say and, is and how clever it. how clever uh, it's the only way i can get around it and yeah. do it you know yeah and, and stay legal and not get sued <laughs> That's so true. i did it so, <laughs> well that could have happened if i whatever it was it didn't happen so uh I found the first congregational church, first congregational church, uh, and the minister there was so nice. They had a seven foot six Busendorfer piano oh, there. Sounds lovely. Someone told me that the church had that piano. I went to him. What the nicest guy in the world, this minister. And I said, I'd like to give a concert. And I was, he says, Well, just to be a hundred dollars, and it's all all we charge. Uh, maybe it was two hundred dollars. It wasn't much money, and he said you can have a whole place. And uh, in fact, you can come down to my quarters. Uh, you could meditate there for a while or relax before you play. Uh, and his quarters were in the back, and you went put on a winding staircase down to a couple floors below. And this way, it was beautiful. It had a beautiful glass looking over Santa Cruz. It's just a beautiful place. It, it just sounds it. Uh, it. It sounds beautiful. It really does. It was. And, and so I developed an audience. So how do you get an audience? People don't know me in Santa Cruz. I'm kind of in the backwoods. Uh, I'm not in the backwoods, but I'm just not in the scene. But I do meet people. I meet a lot of people. Uh, and then I go to them and say, look, uh, I call them up and say, look, I'm going to have a concert. And it's free. There's no money. I want people just to come. Uh, so I'm gonna, if I give you, let's say, 10 tickets, could you distribute them to your friends and invite them to come for free? Uh, but it's a real concert, so I don't want them to feel that because it's free, that's not worth coming. So just let them know you've heard some of my music, invite them to come. And um, so I think they hold 150, whatever the number was, I printed out that many tickets and distributed to friends. All right. Well, I don't know anything that's happening. I get, you know, uh, I make a program for it. And then now I hire, uh, digital is coming, digital is on its way, and I hire someone who does digital recordings. Okay. In those days, digital recording was recorded onto videotape, of those video cassettes. Uh, and we recorded right at the video cassette because it was so wide. Uh, and that's it was done that way before they developed the digital audio tape, which came later. Uh, so my first digital recording, I was very, very excited. Oh my God, I've always recorded on tape. Now digital, this is so exciting. And I really want to have a big audience because I just want the clapping. I want the feel. I want to be able to, I've never played for a really large audience of my own that I brought in on my own and the church was beautiful and had a great piano. They let me come and practice on the own. Day came 
uh, and the house filled up to just enough people. Just enough, okay. Just enough people. Yeah. Well, I had a friend, he was my housemate, his name was Joel, uh, and uh, uh, well, he was managing the concert for me. Uh, and we had all our sound checks, we had all our recording checks and everything, everything was all done. So I went down the winding staircase uh, for about 45 minutes before the concert began at 8 p.m. and just meditated. You know, and I just sat there. I knew I would have a full house. I just knew I would. Uh, you were going uh, back to what Hannah Veary had taught you, your, you know, in the years prior, just getting into that zone. I was already in that mindset. Mm. It wasn't that I had to think about her. I was, I had to just remember that I am living a spiritual life of love. Yeah. And that I'm here tonight to play that love for whomever shows up. Mm -hmm. And I want to really get my message across very well. Yeah. All right. So uh, after 45 minutes, I come up, I hear an audience. <clears throat> Look out, the sea of people are there. Get them sit down to the piano, and I played the first piece that's on waterfall music. Okay, really well. Yeah, and gorgeous. And I go on to my music, and I start playing and playing the music that's on waterfall music, uh, and then I go and play other pieces, uh, and uh, I just keep on playing. And oh my gosh, there's a, now there's a uh, intermission. People come back and they play more and more. And finally, I have a concert. And finally, I have a digital recording. And everyone clapped. So you can create your yes, album. next album, which was live in concert, which was my regular music, but only now a concert of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, with good recording, very good microphones and all. Uh, and so I had a wonderful standing ovation. So I think they wrote something up in the local paper. Uh, I was very happy. It was good. Uh, and that was that. That was 84, 85. But 85, I, I made a cassette of, of um, live in concert. Now I have two albums to sell. Eh, two albums, that's okay. And people are buying the new album. They're buying the old album. I'm still making more money now because I have two albums. I can I can see well. I need three. <laughs> I need to have a set. Of you need three. variety. Magic number, the variety. And yeah, I want to do some more. I'm going to do another concert. And you know, my mother never had heard me play live in concert before. She'd never seen me in an auditorium. Okay, so I organized a concert the next year. This is 1986. Mm -hmm which I'm going to call To Maui With Love. Okay. Uh, because I'm bringing my Maui pieces in, and not the same ones I recorded on the other album, but other pieces, obviously. I didn't want to have a repeat of any piece. And so I organized after the following year, the same church. Uh, this time I, I sold tickets. I gave tickets away and sold tickets. I forgot how exactly how I did it, but it was really well organized, better organized than the first one. It was a repeat, but different. 
All right, it was already out there for everyone to come. On the day of the recording, or the few days before the recording, it starts to rain. Recording probably was in November, mm -hmm. usually in the fall. And uh, it started to rain, one of those heavy California rains that last for several days. Oh, I'm talking cats and dogs. Oh, I can tell you all about rain. Yeah, I can tell you yeah, all you about know, those. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I really do. California is a dry state, but occasionally we get really wet and it's beautiful. All the snow comes in the Sierras. And those are banner years for water. Yeah. Well, this was a banner year. There's just tons of water coming down. And I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to ever have a costume? We get flooding in the streets and all. And so the day of the concert, more rain. Oh, no. My mother is getting in the bus. Concert starts at 8. My mother is getting in the bus. The come, she gets in the bus around 2 o'clock, which gets in around 4.30. I was going to bring her out, bring her to dinner, and then come to the concert. Well, the bus was several hours late. Uh, and 1986, I didn't have a spell phone. So I couldn't. And she certainly didn't have one, so I couldn't be in touch with her. Only with the bus company who told me they can't tell me when it will be in. And then they told me, yes, it'll be in around 6 o'clock, 6.30, just before the concert. We had no time to go out to dinner. So I get some sandwiches first. She finally comes in, all very wet. I mean, it's wet outside and rainy. So I quickly get her into my car and uh, we go to the church. When we get to the church, the church is all set up. Uh, uh, and again, I have the digital recorder there, uh, all, all set up. And uh, uh, it's raining and raining. And we get in the car and we eat our sandwich. And uh, it was just too much. And uh, my again, Joel was managing the concert. And we were going to this is going to be a failure. We're not going to have anyone come. Who's going to come in this kind of rain? Yeah. And my mother came down to see this, and what a disappointment this is going to be for, for her. She was understanding. But still, there's a rain out. Oh, God. Nothing, so, nothing look, worse than it. After, you know, because there's such a build up, you know, when you create an event and there's such an internal and external build up, and then something like that happens, it's so deflating. Oh, it was. So it deflating, really was. yeah. Yeah, so um, I then went down the circular staircase and uh, went down to pray. While I'm praying, this is the truth. God bless, God bless the truth. It stopped raining. I stopped waiting. And what happened next? Well, I'm just praying some more that I'll have an audience. I can play my music to Maui with love. Most of it was going to be uh, just improvised. I was a very good improviser. Yeah. How, what was the capacity of the building where you were doing your concert and how full was it? The same, it was the same, oh, same building. First congregational church. Okay. 150 people, maybe 200. I don't know the exact number, I forgot. There's someone around there. 
Well, it stopped raining. And uh, I was despondent. I put so much energy into making this concert happen. Yeah, there's so much, I like arranging events, there's so much energy goes into such um, efforts that, you, you know, when it doesn't turn out the way you want it to turn out or the way you think it will turn out, you really have to step back and internally really figure out stuff and realign. Well, normally, yes, but this is what happens. The rain stops, and I, 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 and I just shake my head and say, there's no way I'll have an audience. It's impossible. So at, just at 8 o'clock, I come up the stairs. As I come up the stairs, I hear an audience. What, they turned up? I open the door, and there is not a full house, but close to a full house. Really? And what Joel told me, he said, they were filing one by one down the street and coming into the parking lot. They all came in in the last 10 minutes. That's amazing. The whole place filled up from all directions. Yeah. People who were driving to the concert came. Yeah, they just persisted and, and came. That's amazing. And they came, and I had three quarters of an audience. That was great. That was a great result. Oh, oh my God. It was like, oh, thank you, dear God. Thank you so much for this. This is an awesome thing to happen. Yeah. Because I, I, I know that living here in Ireland, we're used to rain and we're used to, you know, commuting and driving and transporting ourselves in the rain. But in America, <laughs> for the time I was there, I've heard stories. People don't know how to drive in the rain. They kind of just like, you know, everything slows down to a halt in the rain where we just tend to keep going at our side. So um, that's amazing. That is amazing. Well, uh, the streets were very wet. The uh, big parking lot of the church was quite wet, but it wasn't flooded. And we did have an audience. And you got your album recorded. I was so happy. My mother was there. See, my mother needed to experience me yeah. for the first time with an audience. Yeah. This was a, a church, but the church was the She must have been so proud. Oh, she was right there in front of the audience. I was so happy. I acknowledged her and everything. And I started playing to Maui with love. Special and moment. And just played my heart out. Digital recording. I just improvising around some of my themes, but new music for the most part. And just playing all kinds but of it, stuff. But it brings I'm a... happy. Yeah, but it, it brings a human element. Sometimes performers are on stage and when they have a connection to somebody in the audience and they recognize that connection, in your case, it was your mother. It brings a very human element to the whole experience. It makes it a very special, you know, for everyone. There's just something that happens at concerts in that real location. It's it's like when you're listening to music, it's not the same as being in the zone or the place or the location where music is being played. There's something that translates, I suppose you could say energetically. And it, it translates where there's just this incredible feeling that exchanges with the the emotion which the music creates in people and there's just that special moment that happens oh thank you for saying that yeah. that's beautiful yes absolutely and i was riding on the waves of that emotion yeah uh, because i was happy i had an audience the rain had stopped you know because the pitter patter on the roof when the rain was going there was no way we could make a recording it all be pitter patter uh 
I often I often look at photographs and I say, you know, a photograph is a moment in time and we're so blasted with social media posters and videos and dear knows what these days. But when I have the opportunity to look at a real photograph, there's something so different and so special about that moment in time. And I think it's the same thing when you attend a concert. It's a moment in time. It's a moment in memory that, that really sticks. And you like I often think of concerts that I've been to in the past and I say, do you remember that concert? Wasn't that special? There's something yeah, there's something I feel that way. Those concerts I remember. Yeah, exactly. But let me just do a quick flashback yeah. to when I was going to UCLA. Uh, I was an English major at UCLA. Uh, that's the University of California in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, the second largest campus after Berkeley. Uh, and it's it's a foment of all kinds of amazing energy when I was there in the 1950s. Well, uh, I had a friend um, that I met in the first year of college. His name was Ray. And so Ray, on the first year I was in college, uh, the first of the four years, uh, Ray brought me over to his house uh, on Crescent Heights Boulevard in Los West Los Angeles, very nice place, beautiful homes, all kind of upper middle class type homes. Uh, and we go in there, he says, look, I have to call my girlfriend, uh, just make yourself comfortable. There were two pianos in the living room. Two? Two. Okay. I can't figure out why there are two. But I go to the piano that looks the biggest and nicest. I sit down to it. And were they grand Start pianos or upright pianos? Oh, yeah. They two nice grand pianos, maybe six and a half, seven feet. I don't know the exact size, but nice sound. The one I, I took the prettier looking piano. I sat down on that one. I started playing playing my music and I'm playing, I hadn't played the piano for a while. I'm just playing, getting into it and my heart's going into it. And 40 minutes goes by and Ray's still on the phone and I'm just playing and playing. After a while, well, the way that the house was, uh, you had the nice living room with the two pianos and next to it was a large dining room, beautiful table. And behind it was a big mirror that was on the wall. And so I'm playing and suddenly I hear a little noise and I turn and I see the back of the head of a woman who was sitting in the dining room listening to me. Okay. She was, a, well, I couldn't see her, but in the back of her head, I you could, could see. You could see that there was someone there, yeah. <sighs> Shocking, so I stopped playing. I played for 45 minutes already. And out comes a very short lady on high heels, uh, who is the mother of Ray. And uh, she says, where'd you learn to play the piano like that? I told her about my piano education and all. And then she said, you're great. That's really beautiful music. Did you make that up yourself? I said, yes, I did. I'm really, you know, do you know that I'm considered one of the finest piano teachers in Los Angeles, hence the two pianos? Oh, okay. Uh, and that um, I love what you just did. Are you studying now? No, I'm just going to school and I have a part-time job. Uh -huh. says, Would you like to study with me? I don't know if I can afford it. I don't think so. I says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you a scholarship to study with me. 
I want you to study with me for the four years you were in college. And I will. So while you were in UCLA and this was in the 1950s, this just happened. She uh, she gave me four solid years of education and didn't have to pay her a penny. That's incredible. Uh, and I said, how can you afford to do this? She says, oh, I've got a lot of really good students. <laughs> they pay me well. I, uh, I, I can afford to teach you. You're, you're the best one of them all. How can I not? You know, I want to teach you. It's my pleasure to do that. But she became my teacher and my friend. Her name, if you've gone now, her name was Esther Lipton, L-I-P-T-O-N. Esther Lipton. Okay. Esther Lipton. And was she associated with uh, UCLA? No. No, she was just independent. No. no. She was associated with the piano teachers of Los Angeles. And later I found out that she had the highest reputation of all piano teachers in West LA. She didn't tell me that, but that was told to me by another teacher. That's incredible. When we gave recital. I went to twice a year, we had recitals at her home. And she invited other teachers and people. And one teacher told me, so do you know who you're studying with? I said, I think so. And now you probably don't. She's the number one teacher in all of Los Angeles, the best. Did you research her background in terms of her own training and, and how that evolved? She told me about it. Her husband was a violinist um, and they played a lot of music in the house. She was a pianist all her life. Uh, she didn't have, I didn't do any research. There was no research you could do. I, so what she told me, she was really a good teacher. So uh, she had me playing you know, Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms. And, and actually, I as you raise the subject of those composers, like where's your love for classical music? Would you perform classical music if you had to? I, that's what I was doing. Well, I learned classical music all ever since I was a child. That's all I played was classical music. Yeah, but when you transitioned, but what I'm asking is when you transitioned over to the, your own music, we'll say in the 1980s and doing those concerts, did classical music come into those concerts? In my own music, no. No. It was only mine. It was all original. I, I stopped playing classical music after I studied with them. But during the time, I could only play classical music. But I had recordings of Debussy from the 1950s uh, that was done by a very great German. They're actually, they're, they're on YouTube now, I think. I was listening to some of them recently. Oh, everything. Yeah, be amazing there. recordings just to go back and hear the man himself in action. The, the greatest of them was a German man named Walter Gieseking. I'll spell it G-I-E-S-E. K-I-N-G, Gieseking. Okay. Walter Gieseking was the number one player of Debussy and Ravel. And they recorded them on Angel Records. Well, I had acquired those recordings. And this is when I was in, um, before I went to UCLA, before I met Esther Lipton, I used to listen to Debussy all the time. Oh, Debussy is just wonderful. That Debussy, uh, that, that infused inside of me, and I realized this is the music I want to play. This is the most beautiful I know, it's such I a unique, play. beautiful tone, Debussy. It's like, oh, oh it's beautiful. Wow. It's beautiful. He is, he, you know, 
it's very interesting. You know, I mean, there are the great composers, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, you know, those are the, you know, Haydn, you know, they're all those guys up there. Uh, and that's where classical music gets its reputation from. But Debussy started the schools of music that could not be foreseen by him. One is film, all of film music comes from the music of Debussy. Yeah. Because he had, it isn't neo-Debussyan, no. It's just the influence that Debussy had because Debussy did programmatic music. Programmatic music, not the formal sonata form, which is all of classical music. You have to do the sonata form. Not Debussy, Debussy. Oh, sure, he, sh he shattered all the rules. He he just more or less shattered all that and developed his own scales and, you know, sustained sound across the, the piano. Sure, the probably the most well-known piece of his for piano would be Claire de Lune. One of the well, most- Claire de Lune is, is his number one piece, mm. yes. But he has some pieces that are far more beautiful than that. Yeah. Can you name uh, a couple? Well, yeah, uh, one is called Cloche qui traverse les feuilles, clocks that traverse through the leaves.
clock means time, time that uh, traverses through the leaves. Lovely title. Becomes timeless, you know, that one of the great ones. It, it's, it's his book two. He did book one of piano music and book two. And this is in the book two. Uh, and there's some other gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous pieces, adagios. That's so beautiful. I remember when I came across him and Ravel first, the sound just captured me. Beautiful oh, me sound. Too. It's just, I don't know, there's something beautiful about it that I don't think and I've heard the, elsewhere, to be honest. And so uh, the, the one of the pieces was called The Girl with the Flaxen yes, Hair. Yes, 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 yes. The Girl with the Flaxen Hair. Yeah. So I, so Esther let them let me learn that piece. I kept on playing it. No end, no end at home. That's all I played. We had just a, a um, upright piano, which we rented. But I played it for hours on end. And then I played it on her piano. And oh my God, I Debussy got infused inside of me. He was born inside of me when I played that piece. I go, oh, just got into it. And then she says, well, let's do Claire de Lune. So I got Claire de Lune done. I said, oh my God. And then you know, then we had a recital. Twice a year, she had a recital for all her students. And she has students that were way beyond me technically. We're really doing a big fasting and all this stuff. You know, and they were doing really well. They, they were wealthy students, wealthy families. I didn't come from a wealthy family. It didn't matter. You know, it was music. It was inside of me. That's all it was. And uh, and so we decided to play Claire Alone. Because uh, what I had was feeling, atmosphere and feeling like none of her other students. So in some many ways, I was her pet student. I know she had other favorites, of course, but she loved me. That Esther Lipton. She put time into you. She, I mean, come on, a scholarship she, speaks. You know, she loved me. Yeah. She loved, loved my feeling. Mm. One day, she banged her, her, her hand down on the piano as hard as could be. And she was a tiny woman. And she was, where do you get your feeling? Exactly the way, like that. Where do you get your feeling? I was just a kid. I looked up and said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I knew, but I couldn't say. At that time, I was not spiritually involved. I didn't know anything about yeah, That was the before college. the days of Hawaii. Before all of the days. Yeah. But I knew that I felt so deeply inside. Mm. Uh, and WC hit those nerves and places, yeah. not just to me, but to so many people. It's just wonderful. And, and of course, Ravel's 
piano music is equally yes, beautiful. Those two, those two composers. So I yeah. found myself playing just Debussy and Ravel. And Esther Lipton became comfortable with me just staying with the Impressionists. I said, you don't have to play Bach if you don't want to. No, Beethoven. You want to just play this? Just we'll, we'll do this stuff, these things. So for a few years, that's all we did. In the last two years of study, I studied that. And then she'd have this concert and uh, recital. This one part of Prayer de Lune that coming toward the end, when the notes come down, the, the descending notes coming down. There was a part I didn't get the rhythm exactly right. The place where you just, as you come down and descend on those notes, there is a pause. Uh, and then you allow that pause before you go to the final last notes. Never could get it right, even up to the day before the, the recital. But Esther said, okay, well, let's just do it anyway, do the best you can. So um, came time. For the concert it came time for me to play and i played and when i was coming down on the, the descending notes i paused and just came down on the note exactly the way it was right it's supposed to be yeah me. you know that that can sometimes happen uh you put so much effort into a piece and you can never really we say nail it technically in one little part or something and then when you actually have to press the button to perform it it just works it's like automatic uh, pilot kicks in or something i don't know what happens it's just the moment it it, it was there and at, at, i was just finishing up on my last notes and i turned my head to her and boy did i see a smile yeah. ear, ear on her oh i could see that I, I could see that so much yeah i could see that <laughs>
But there's so many, isn't there so many special moments which music is part of? You know, music creates such moments of memory and those special connections and those. Oh, it's, it's just a world to itself. It's just really a world to itself. So you had the concert where you um, where your mum came and heard you for the first time. That was a very special memory. So what happened after that? Well, um, after that, uh, now that was 1986. And I came out with the second album, Tamale with Love. So now I have three albums. And I would go to shows, not just in California, but now I was going to Arizona, some very big shows there. And I made my way in the summer up to the Northwest. I had my first shows in Seattle. And I started going up into the islands to have summer shows. And they were just unbelievable. I mean, the money that flowed up there was so amazing. I was making more money up in the Northwest than anywhere in the country. I found my biggest audience up in the Seattle, Portland area, and the islands surrounding Seattle in the Puget Sound. Beautiful islands. I'll talk about them later on when I go play later, but I was doing those shows, making so much money. It was so good. I was so happy that one day I was doing a show. Now, this is jumped to about 1989. I was doing all these shows. I really made very good money, thousands and thousands of dollars. And I was saving and putting into the business. I wasn't putting money into my own pocket. I didn't want to. I wanted to keep on growing the business as a good business person. And I was learning how to do business. Everything was done right, legally, and I was really happy. Uh, I never would get checked by anybody because I did it right. Had all my receipts, everything. Okay, so uh, then... Uh, I was in San Jose doing a show. And I opened up, you know, it was slow a little bit, so I take the San, the San Francisco newspaper, and I open it up. And there's a full page ad. Full page ad says, there's a big piano company up in San Francisco, said that they were had, having a showcase of the greatest number of Busendorfer pianos that have ever been shown in the United States on one floor at one time. Above New York, this was a very big store. Wow. All Busendorfers they brought in for this showcase. Well, you know, there's a lot of wealth in that area, so they knew they would sell those pianos. Oh, that's the piano of my dreams. That's the piano I wanted, the Busendorfer. I mean, I had no team anymore. I was playing Busendorfer for concerts. And you said older. you said before we started recording the segment that um, Busendorf is like a Gotrian on steroids. That you know the sound, <laughs> <laughs> the sound is going to be one of those things that you can't replace. Right. I mean, I don't mean to be the Gotrian company because they make great pianos. Yeah. But the Busendorfer has deeper, richer basses, has beautiful trebles. I'm sure the Grotian is better made now than it was then, but at that time, the Busendorfer was the queen of pianos, the leading piano of the world, the most expensive piano, considered the Rolls Royce of pianos. That was his reputation. 
here they were, the largest number ever assembled on one piano floor for sales. Well, okay, that was, I saw that on a Saturday. And then uh, on a Sunday, I called them up and they said, oh yeah, we got all these pianos. Uh, and I said, oh, great. And I said, uh, so I, um, I made an appointment to come on Monday. My show was Saturday and Sunday. Couldn't wait, I came up Monday morning. And there they were. Oh, kid in a candy store. That's right. There were seven, seven foot four pianos. That was the piano I wanted, the seven foot four. Now you have the larger piano, the nine foot, and Busendorfer makes an imperial grand, which is nine foot six. A nine, six, nine foot six piano is designed for one thing only, to be played in concert halls where the deep basses, the extra basses, and the extra octave that they had further down. So you could hear that piano above the orchestra, which is what you do in piano concertos. You can't let, you fail when the orchestra drowns out the pianist. Mm, the yeah. pianist has to be- There has to be a, a sound all. balance, if you will, yeah. And in front of it, yeah. really. It, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's what it was built, made for. They had a nine foot six, but it was so expensive. Uh, $200,000. Back in 19, you said 1989? 1989. 200,000. Yeah, more. Uh, and, then the, and then the nine foot was still too big for my house, but also too big for recording because you didn't want the bass to outweigh the trebles. You had a very even sound between trebles and range and bass. So I settled, I knew that seven to four is the ideal recording piano. I was told that by uh, people who helped me learn how to record piano. Uh, and I just knew that was what I wanted. Well, there were seven of them. Uh, none had sold yet. It was just a brand new, uh, I was one of the early people that came up after they saw that sale. There were seven to choose from. How much was the price of them? They were in the, they lowered the price. They were in the $50,000 range at the great discount. However, I didn't have $50,000, nowhere near that money. So, but I had very good credit. They checked me out and they said, just give us $5,000 down. We'll put you on a 10 year note. 10 year note, okay. So that meant you had to sell, you had to keep Pay about close to $800 a month with insurance. Not a big amount to pay, but my rent was higher. Uh, but I, I knew I could do it by making enough money. So now I decided, okay, I'm gonna buy one of these things. I can actually get one. I can get one on my own, pay for my own piano. You know, I've been given pianos, but now I can really pay. Yeah, like this thing. is your independent instrument to do with what you will now. No one had control right. over it. Yeah. I, Absolutely. You just had to figure out paying for it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, I had to figure out which one of the seven that I wanted. Oh, yeah. that's <laughs> Yeah, but that's interesting. They were, you said they were all seven foot fours and there was like a number of them there. Did they all have variances of tone when you, when you were going? That up? was the whole point. Yes, yeah. they did. 
And there were other pianos of all sizes, including upright pianos, six foot pianos. Yeah, but I'm saying, but, but I'm saying like, if you have a grand piano, if you have like six grand pianos, they're all the very same size. Is there still going to be variances in tone because the soundboard of the woods yes. would be different, I'd imagine? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there were variances in tone. And so um, I asked them, I have a portable tape recorder, a digital tape recorder. I had the finest microphones uh, that I had purchased. Uh, and so I said, um, well, look, I know you're open in the evening up till 10 o'clock. Uh, so I'd like to record around eight or nine o'clock. I'd like to record each piano and then take home and listen to the recordings through headphones. And I can help ascertain the pianos that I want. I'll be the best for recording. Right, exactly. So I, I went to all seven and I narrowed them. Some were no good at all. Some were just clunky basses or very thin trebles. They didn't have the juice, they didn't have the energy that I wanted. But there were three pianos that, that did have it. And one piano had the most beautiful mid-range I'd ever heard. And every note was so clear and you can, you know, in piano playing, when you're playing melody, you, you hold one note down to get to the next yes. note. Yes, yeah. That sort of thing. And the piano was pure silk pure joy, the most beautiful mid-range I had ever played in my life. Okay. However, the basses were thuddy, thuddy basses. And the salesman, very sophisticated salesman, said, well, we can bring those up. But I knew nothing could be done. I was too smart to know that you can't do it. They don't have it there. They're not going to have it, no matter what you do. Another piano had good basses, nice mate. No, no one, no one had the great mid range. However, the um, trembles were gorgeous, beautiful bell-like tones. Like the basses were thuddy. Nope, I couldn't have that one. And so then there was another one that was very, very good, good in all fields. But however, I chose the one with the, the big mid-range because that's where most melody is. Even though my atmospheric music does have bass and trebles, as you know. I figured, okay, I'll get the basses worked out. We'll voice them. Uh, I was told that for nine, six months, they'll come every week and help me get the sound that I want. They'll pay for all of that's included in the price. Uh, and they have one of the best technicians in, in, in that part of the world will come. Uh, and uh, I said, okay, I'll get the one with the, the mid-range. I put my name on it and I went back home. I listened to everything. Um, and that one and the other one I liked was really good, but the mid-range wasn't as good. So I went to sleep. I was going to sign the papers the next day. And in my sleep, a voice came to me. I don't know whose voice it was, whether it was God who came to me or just my own soul came to me. I don't know. But it said, Paul, don't buy this one. Buy the other piano. The other one? 
So the other one that no. had the, the better base or the, the better treble. Right, and it's also mid-range. Uh, okay. I woke up first thing in the morning. I called up the piano company. I said, put my name on that one, the other one. Fine. I grew up there and then we dropped the papers and I signed a contract and gave them the money, 5000 And uh, now they arranged to get the piano moved to my house. I lived in Santa Cruz and I lived in a cottage, a small cottage next to a larger home. The people in the home were the nicest people in the world. In fact, I got into that place based on my reputation. That's a separate story. I don't think we have time to tell that story. Uh, so uh, I, they had a cottage near their home. Beautiful little place. It had one bedroom. It had a small bathroom. The living room wasn't very big, maybe 15 by 20, something like that. Not even that. Uh, and there were two entrances, a back entrance into the bedroom and a front entrance. But you have to go upstairs. You, and to get there, you had to drive through um, a dirt road. You had to open up the gate, which was, you had a key, open up the gate, park the car, close the gate, and come up the dirt road up to about 900 to 1,000 feet. Uh, and you go on a very easy dirt road, then you take a little side road, and you come to the house where I'm living, and the cottage was right next to that, you know, 200 feet away. They parked there, and we, I figured they'd get into the living room. Down with the fit. They couldn't get it through the, the door into the living room. Oh, no. Okay. I saw the piano going in the front door. It didn't get in. So they said, okay, let's go around the house. We'll go to the back door. That was a big job for them to come up to the stone steps and go to the back door. They went to the back door and they got it right in. Just like that. They wheeled it right into the living room and set it up and it took up the whole living room, which was fine. We had a beautiful view of the ocean behind me. I lived up in the hills over the ocean. I lived north of Santa Cruz in a little town called Davenport at that time. That's where the cottage was. About 10 miles or 20 miles north of uh, Santa Cruz. And uh, uh, it was just, uh, the trees were mostly redwoods. Amazing trees. Uh, and it, there was a big meadow. So you could see Beautiful. you could see the ocean from where you were positioning the ocean your... from there oh at, my at goodness. the almost thousand foot level. Yeah. It was a paradise. Yeah. And big huge, big, huge pane windows. Yeah, yeah. I want to be able to play the piano and look out on that scene. Yeah. And the piano just fit in, it crowded the room, and I would readjust the room to fit the piano, which I did. And um, the piano is now in Scottsdale. Yes, that was your first piano. And your first My independently first, owned piano. Well, I had that first one in Hawaii when I was mad, you know, when I manifested mm -hmm. pianos. But that wasn't a great piano. It was just a But this was like the piano. dream first piano, if you will. This was my, my dream. The main piano. kind of one you would be driving to get that you'd want that you'd piano. need, I suppose. I had a Rolls Royce. Yeah. I bought a Rolls Royce <laughs> in pianos. Yeah. 
So that was like, oh my God, what a great moment that was. Uh, so I just was so happy. And did you did you well, follow up with recording in that environment there? Did that no, no you didn't yet. you couldn't record there? You no. of course to be a recording uh, uh, studio well, you'd need, I suppose. I needed a full year. So for the first six months they brought their their uh, piano technician. And we spent a lot of time voicing the piano, getting the mid-range to up nicely. We got the we got the beautiful balance of the bass and the trebles, the mid-range was coming up. I was practicing every day all day long when I could, and I had shows to do. Uh, and then we realized that it gets very hot there in the summertime. And I keep have to keep the piano cool. So I get an air conditioner with the approval of the landlord, uh, one that goes into the wall and one that turns on automatically when I'm not home and the temperature reaches a certain temperature. I don't think I, I don't think that people realize that um, as an instrument, most pianos are just positioned in a room and maybe tuned one time a year or whatever. They don't realize the detail that actually goes into looking after a, a piano where a performer is concerned and where the needs of recording are concerned, that there is a lot of bits and pieces to consider when it comes to tuning it and getting it refined and locating it in a good location, making sure the humidity is in good nick, you know, around the instrument that it doesn't dry out too much. It's a wooden instrument with a very expensive soundboard and it has to be maintained with that in mind. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big task. Like you have to know what you're doing really. Well, you know, they put in the most advanced type of heater. They put a heater underneath, underneath the piano, uh, below the soundboard. Uh, but they, you have to put water in it every few days. And so what it is, is that it heats the water. So that water heats there, but it's not so much steam that comes up. Yeah, it's, it's just, just balancing humidity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's throughout the year. But then again, the summertime, it gets hot in the room and I had to keep the piano cool when I was not there or even there. So it was a very expensive uh, air conditioner, the best you could get. Uh, but I had Sears, Sears, I got from Sears and they installed it for me beautifully. Wow, so you got your first major piano? And that was 19... First major piano? That was 1989. 1989. The room is beautiful. I decorated. Oh, sure. I mean, the view you had art. such an inspirational view, the view of the ocean oh, and redwood trees and meadows and everything. Just getting oh, you in the sure. zone for creativity. Was for composition. Ever, and it was in the country. The old house was nearby, but I, I didn't go to their house very much. And they didn't, they never bothered me. Uh, and so I could just have my own little cottage. The ideal. Yeah, perfect. For a man yeah. to have his own little cottage in the country, close enough to a city. You can get there in, in 20 minutes. Perfect situation, uh, yeah. And you know, all your groceries and everything come back. Uh, so it was all beautiful. Uh, now, just to recap over this episode. So really what you've described to us is that you started really selling your music majorly. You did two concerts to create albums and you then get your first major piano. That was really a big, big step and I suppose a certain sense of commitment and so on. So it was a significant kind of stepping forward into this world of creating your own music. 
commercially. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I was finally on the piano that I could do my very best. Yeah. Did you do a lot? Of, did you do a lot of composition in that period? Once you got your oh, skill yeah. up, you did a lot of composition. Right, and I repeated it. Um, my first recording uh, was going to be waterfall music. Okay. In fact, the recording that you've already played was the one I did on the piano. Beautiful. Okay. Beautiful. Because that was my final record up to that moment, my final recording of it. The one that I considered to be the masterpiece. And that recording comes a year later after I buy the piano. Yeah. Because you have because to get the piano I, refined and you have to work on the piano. And the recording refined. Because I knew how to record. I had the right mics. They taught me how to do that in Hawaii. Uh, but now I had to practice and and it took me a long time. I didn't have a great tuner after they left. The tuner I had was from the Sandy, from the San Jose Symphony at the time. And he came, he was very good, but he wasn't good enough. He didn't give me what Yoshi Nishimura gave me in Hawaii. Nishimura made the piano sound like a, 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 it was just a steel pond, play one note, and you feel the ripples go out across the whole soundboard. But it's just, you know, from a musician standpoint, I often see some musicians, they create music, but they don't listen intently. And what I'm seeing with, with you is that there's this intense awareness of sound, very, very intense, that you're listening really intently to the vibrations going across the soundboard and across the strings. That it isn't right, just simply you're not just pressing keys, like you're really like observing the the deep resonance, the high trebles and the contrast and all of that between. Um, I think that's a huge um, piece of information for anybody who's trying to refine sound, really listen intently. Well, you're, you're making a recording for a long time. You are, yeah. And you want uh, to get it dead on. Make sure you have to have everything right. Every nuance. Um, everything right you have to have the right piano you have to have the right sound yeah you have the right equipment to record yeah. it with mm -hmm. and you have to have your artistry it's your artistry that you're recording you're an artist so you have to be able to listen you have to make sure that the tuning the tuning has to be a, a professional tuning the way they do it in europe and japan it can't be slightly off tune slightly off tune is going to have an off tune listener they're not going to get the complete tonality and they're not going to get my message the way I, I intended. Yeah, very true. And so uh, uh, to get the tuning that you need and the voicing of the piano, that's an art in itself by the people who do it. They're, they're the ones dedicated to giving you it your sound. It sounds that they have to be well-trained to handle such a situation. They have to be very well-trained and tuned in, if you will. Um, so the first, the first recording you did on that piano was Waterfall. Right, but uh, here's the story on that, and maybe we'll end our, our end this podcast on that story. So it's now about a year later, I've been practicing like crazy. I have now a different tuner. He's good, but he's, he's not great. He's not getting my troubles to, you see, when you tune the piano, you tune the middle string first. That's why they put those uh, rubber things on. To, hold the, the notes so you don't hear the other strings. 
you, you get the tuning on the middle strings. That's getting the, uh, that's called the, uh, Get the name of it, but it, it, it gets it gets the total tone of the piano from bass to treble perfectly the way it's supposed to be. And then once you get those middle strings all tuned, then you go and you work with each of the other two strings to make sure they're exactly like the middle. Yeah. String. And then you get the whole piano. I said with the temperament is the word I was. Okay, so you're getting the mid, the, the temperament of the middle of the piano tune first. Right. Okay. That's the way tunes always work. Okay. Uh, but then, you see, this temperature and humidity changes during a time. A, a concert tuner is taking his time for a few hours. This is not a quick one, half hour tuning. This is a two and a half, three hour tuning. Okay. Uh, and so uh, these people, as, as they tune, the slight temperature changes, and suddenly the the treble is slightly off tune. It goes out. It's like a guitar. When you play the you know the guitars are always tuning their so it was, even during concerts. So what you're saying is the temperature. If there's any change in temperature, it does affect the tune. That, that's amazing. Of course, it's a wooden instrument. Every, every degree. The temperature mm -hmm. affects the piano by three points, something like that. Okay. But if you have a five degree difference in temperature, it's going to change. Really adjust it. Yeah. Temperamental. You can't just tune it and make it last. It only tunes for an hour. Okay. When you're playing and you're playing it hard, mm -hmm. it goes out of tune. I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't know that I had to spend a ton of money it's, on having It sounds it, yeah, it sounds it that it's expensive to look after. It, it more. Mm. I mean, I, I was paying more than just the cost of paying the piano. I was paying, I don't know, over a thousand dollars a month on having the technicians keep it for me. Every week they came, every single week. And then before I was going to do a recording, they came every day. Well, I had this one guy who was very good but he didn't get the trebles exactly right. I was ready to record waterfall music on this great piano and I'd play it. And, and I knew that I wasn't getting those, the beautiful bells were not matching the mid-range that was slightly off tune. And if I didn't have that tuning, I can't really get my message. And Santa Cruz, you know, it's, it's the boondocks really, you know, it's, it, San Francisco, you can't get tunes to come from there at 75 miles. Uh, and so this tuner was very good, but he didn't quite get it. He was close. So I figured, well, I have to record this because I'm going to go on a big tour this summer up to the Northwest. I need to have my first CDs. I need to have a really great CD in my piano. So I record the piano anyway record the album slightly off tune but i mean most people don't hear that i don't think I, they would it's no it's, it's critics would hear it i haven't i have to be satisfied you know I, the perfections to me i learned how to do this stuff it, it, i was trained and i became very sophisticated i mean I, I i was i was very good about the way i handled people 
Now, it wasn't like, you know, get this right or else. It wasn't nothing like that. It was like, let's just get it right. And they did their best and they, they didn't get it right. Yeah. Okay, it was close. It was good, good enough, maybe. So I recorded Waterfall music over a period of a few days. And this guy came up every day and retuned me and retuned me. Okay, so then I went through all the best pieces and I finally put them all together. And I finally had my waterfall music out. I listened to it. I wasn't totally happy with all the sound, but I was really happy with performance. Okay, that's what I was gonna plan to send to the CD company to make my CD. Well, he comes the next week after I had done that. And he gives me the tuning I want because we already were so well tuned. He just goes in more exacting and gets those things. He did some research and he figured out what he had to do with the uh, getting the tune right, the temperament right and keeping it there. And he got it for me the way Yoshi Nishimura got it. He just got it. Play the first note, it's a ripple that goes out over. You play your first chord, the ripples go and everywhere. Oh, it's, it's like it was perfect. Yeah, perfect. He got it. Okay, he left. Now I had to record the piano all over again, the, the recording, but I only had one day. So you had to record it all one in one night. day? One night. One night. One night. My goodness. I'd already done the recording, the pieces were well done. So I took the night, starting around maybe nine o'clock at night. I didn't care how late it went in the morning. I told uh, my neighbors who owned the place, I said, look, I'm gonna play all night. So shut your doors and windows because I don't wanna bother you, but I'm gonna record tonight. They were very nice. Okay. So I record the first piece about five times. I finally get the interpretation. I really like piano's a beautiful tune. Second piece, go all the way through the album. Now three or four o'clock in the morning and I'm done. But the piano goes out of tune while you're playing. In the in, in the in professional concerts, you will always find during the intermission. Yeah, the tuners will come out. Yeah. And you see it yourself. Yeah. They do that on all pianos. But a Busendorfer, they have to, they're really getting back those trebles. They go out. All right, I had a recording and then I went and put it all together and now I have waterfall music as you hear it today.
To find out more about Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation, go to waterfallgiving.com. Also, stay tuned for the next Paul Lloyd Warner podcast. Enjoy.